Hey everyone, this is the first episode of season four of Nonprofit on the Rocks, which I did not see coming. Ashley, is that what she said? <laughs> you know, Matt, I, I don't really know what she said, but I do know that you need to introduce yourself. <laughs> I'm already not doing my job in season four, which we are now, what, in our 40th show, I think, across the country? Is that right? Or because we're at the start, I think we're in our like 31st. I don't, I wasn't there for math. I don't, I don't remember. <laughs> but anyway, hi everyone. This is Matt Kamen. I am your host of Nonprofit on the Rocks and co-founder of Envision Consulting, which is a national consulting firm providing recruiting and strategy to nonprofits across the country. And with us for now is Ashley Watterson, our producer. Ashley, is that what she said? Again, she and I, we're not that close. And even if we were, I have ADD and I don't listen. So I don't know. I'm going to take your word that that is in fact what she said. <laughs> <laughs> you know what she did say? She said, happy birthday early, Ashley, because that's what's going on this week in my house. It is not only my birthday coming up, but it is my son's birthday as well. We share a birthday. Oh. So I have some feelings about that. He's eight and I am, it's so true. Once you cross 40 and maybe you're not this way, Matt, but I find that I literally have to stop and do the math every time someone asks me how old I am. I haven't crossed 40, so I don't oh, know. Oh, right, 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 right. I don't, I don't know. I don't know how that works. It's funny because my birthday becomes a thing every year because it is on the same day as my son's. So it can't just be forgotten about. And yet he gets all of the attention, right? So in a way, I do get to just kind of slide my birthday under the rug. Does that not make sense? I mean, sure, but I also feel like you need to do some kind of celebration because, you know, kids ruin everything, actually. They do. They just, they take away your body. They take away your enjoyment of life. Really, you can no longer travel. You can't really go out. Your house is disgusting and you have no money. Such truth for someone without children. It's very perceptive. You've been in my house since you just commented on how disgusting it is. <laughs> I can see in the background on Zoom. <laughs> it's like a final nail in the coffin that he also took away your birthday. And I don't like that. And so here's what we're going to do. We of Nonprofit on the Rocks are going to celebrate you, Ashley. And today's episode with Jasmine is dedicated to you, my friend. Mm. And to your, what are you, 53, 54? How old? <laughs> Thanks, Matt. I look and feel 53. I am, in fact, 43, if I do the math. So that's the thing. I was born in 79, so it's like I have to add the one. And, I, and you and I, we're both not good at math, so no. it's just unfortunate. No. But I couldn't have just been born on a nice round number. I'm just going to say today's episode dedicated to you <laughs> and your 53rd birthday. And... <laughs> And maybe I'm going to hire somebody to clean your house and kick your kid out. So of the audience that we have, what would you like somebody to do for you? Would you like a DM? Would you like a tweet? Would you like somebody to comment on your Instagram, which is nonprofit underscore on underscore the underscore rocks? <laughs> you know what? I'm a simple gal of simple taste. And I would love a little birthday shout out on our socials. That's always fun. Getting new listeners, getting people to leave comments on the Apple podcast page about how much they're enjoying our show. And also maybe somebody who would shout out to you and say, I don't look 53. <laughs> that would also be a nice birthday present. You bastard. The only people who listen to our show are our parents. And I don't know how great they are on socials. So Dr. Kamen has an Instagram account and Dr. he really Kamen. likes me. Dr. Kamen will write on your Instagram page. Don't worry, Ashley, you don't look a day over 43. Thank you, Dr. Kamen. That would mean the world to me. <laughs> now, today's show, our very first show of season four is with your friend. So I'd love for you to introduce her because she is spectacular. And I was shocked that you even had such a high caliber friend. I even asked her, I was like, wait, our Ashley Watterson? Like, are you sure it's our Ashley? And she was like, no, no, I love her. And I'm like, our Ashley? Okay, yes. It is rather shocking to you and to others that I would have a friend that is as smart and accomplished and incredible as Jasmine Schuper is. But truly, I can't imagine uh, an episode that I would rather have 
air to kick off my birthday weekend than this one. Jasmine is the founder of an organization called the Greenline Housing Foundation. And essentially, it is an organization dedicated to combating redlining, which is the systemic racist practice of denying housing privileges to people of color. I can't think of a better episode to celebrate your birthday, especially with one of your very good friends. So with that, Ashley, I hope everyone enjoys learning about Greenline and all of the amazing things that Jasmine is doing as a founder and most importantly, Oprah. <laughs> yes, we are definitely hoping that Oprah listens to this episode and gives to this very deserving organization. And by the way, I'm gonna say Oprah as many times as I can so that Ashley could hashtag Oprah and hopefully invite Oprah. And finally, she's gonna to listen to this podcast and we are gonna take off on Ashley's birthday. So happy birthday, Ashley. And I hope you guys enjoy Jasmine Schubert. A quick disclaimer for our listeners. As we all know, Matt is a little bit technologically um, well, let's just call it incompetent. And as a result, the sound quality on this episode from Matt, despite our best efforts to fix it, is not great. But um, hopefully you'll forgive us and we promise we'll do better next episode. At least Jasmine sounds perfect and that's really what matters. Enjoy the episode. Hello, Jasmine Shupra. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing well, Matt. I'm so happy to be here. So I'm so excited to have you on this show for a few reasons. Number one, you are friends with Ashley, our producer, which, I mean, that may be a strike against you. I haven't figured this out yet. Yes, and it's so funny. I don't know if Ashley told you how we met, too, but we kind of tore up a private school tour and were being very obnoxious and super loud to the point where I think we had to be reprimanded because we were having so much fun. Yeah, that, that sounds like Ashley. She's probably right now editing this on like her third bottle of wine. So <laughs> that sounds like Ashley to me. And then the other reason why I'm so excited is because you're a founder and I don't get that many founders on this show. So it makes me really happy always to interview a founder in this space because there are a lot of people, well, there's a few people who listen to us who uh, do uh, want to start nonprofits. So I'm excited to have you. But before we start, my friend, what are you drinking tonight? I love how you jump to the important stuff. I have a nice chilled Riesling. I'm a white wine drinker and I kind of like them sweet. So mm. that's what I'm drinking. Well, that's how I like my husband. So <laughs> uh, I'm drinking some brown liquor. So cheers to you. Cheers. Mm. Every once in a while, he's sweet, but so far he's gotten a new promotion. He's really not that sweet. So mm -hmm. there you have the dish on Philip, who sometimes listens to my show. I want to talk a little bit about your nonprofit and why I was so excited about it. But before we do, I'd like to understand from you why in the world you were like, I think today I'm going to start my own nonprofit. I'm just going to not make any money and go through having to find board members and donors and all this stuff. I have no idea how to incorporate and just go for it. What made you say... Yeah, this is my lot in life. I'm going to start a nonprofit. I think it maybe more found me than I found it. And it's kind of a beautiful convergence of a number of things that I didn't realize at the time would converge to become this nonprofit that I started. When I was younger, I loved real estate. I would go to open houses for fun, just ride my bike in the neighborhood to an open house for no reason. So I always loved you know, the idea of homeownership and what homeownership affords and the possibilities for decoration and all of the things. And then I went to college, I studied business and a part of that was finance. And then really kind of got to learn how important homeownership and property ownership is and just wealth building in general. And then fast forward, had kids, took a little bit of time off work, and then went back to work at my church, which is a large church. It was a multi-ethnic intergenerational church. And the pastor there, Fellowship Church in Monrovia, is very big on what does the Bible say about justice specifically? And not a lot of churches will talk about that. And so I got a lot of teaching about why we have a responsibility and what is the biblical imperative for justice and all of that. And then fast forward, I met my husband. He uh, went to Pepperdine. I got I to gotta interrupt. I got to interrupt because these are the things that I feel like people always seem to gloss over and they're really important. So mm -hmm. I met my husband uh, who approached who first? That is a very important question and actually one that's still up for debate 13 years later. I think that he approached me 
because it was an astronomy class. And so we had to do a lab and part of the lab involved looking at the stars on top of this beautiful mountain in Malibu. And I did notice him and his very curly hair. He's got super, super curly hair. And I was like, oh, he's cute. Maybe I can shake this class up a bit. But I was graduating and I was like, whatever. He contends that I asked him to be my lab partner, which I may or may not have done. But I'm pretty sure he made the first move before that. Um, He made the first move a thousand percent. When they say they didn't, they did. Come on, look at you. If I were straight, I'd be all over you. (laughs) I appreciate that. I will take that as a highest form of compliment. (laughs) It's it's actually really funny because my husband also, also tells me that I made the first move. It is not true. He attacked me on the hood of his car. So I'm with you. I'm on your team. Your husband totally approached you first. He totally approached me first. Yes. And after that, really laid on the full court press which I appreciate being pursued is great. And so, he's great. So again, I'm going to, and we're going to go back to the story because it does make me a good host, I promise. <laughs> but, but how did your husband propose? Mm. We, this one's not up for debate. This was actually really well done him, but the lab that we had on top of that really tall mountain, he took me back there and he said, this is where you asked me to be your lab partner. And now I'm asking you to be my life partner. Oh, that's so sweet. Right? That's Pretty so good. Sweet. He did well. All right. That's cool. He did. He did good. He did good. So, and actually one last question before we go back, which is, and this always seems to be something that I always find really interesting. Did you guys, you're a member of this church. Were you both the same religion when you met? We were. Yep. We were. Which was helpful. And and one thing about him too, is that he's a Caucasian male, comes from an affluent family, but was so interested in justice and media. That's his medium. He works in film and TV and just how media can be used to further justice and what the responsibility is there and taking this African-American film classes and all of that. And so he cared about things that he didn't necessarily have to care about based on his socioeconomic position. So that was really hot. Cool. And one last thing before we go back to your church, which is, I mean, you've probably listened to a few of these podcasts, which I appreciate because we're friends with Ashley, but we want to be like top 10 uh, of nonprofit podcasts in the country. The number one, two, and three shows are churches. I'm making an ask, Jasmine, that you help us by like making every one of your fellow congregants at church listen to our show. I can totally do that. Our pastor just wrote a book. He's got a huge platform, had his own podcast. So it'll, it'll move the needle, Matt. It'll right. move the needle. All right. It's Happy to help. It's happening. Okay. Going back to your call. Yeah. So I met my husband and his family worked really hard. His grandpa started a business from nothing, from the ground up, was able to sell that to his um, mom's husband, then to his dad. And then they had started an account for him to buy a house when he was little, which helped us to buy our first condo, which helps us to buy our first home, which helped us to buy our second home. And so I feel like the intersection of experiencing the benefits of generational wealth as it pertained to real estate, knowing the history, I became a real estate agent before we got married and you have to study, you have to take these classes, you have to do all of that. And and I learned something that one, I was really angry that I hadn't learned it before. And two, I was like, really, is that real? And it wasn't until 1968 that the Fair Housing Act was passed. So in 1967, it was legal to discriminate on the basis of race on the sale financing and leasing of housing in some places. And so that coupled with the church and the justice and coupled with, I spent time after college as an underwriter, corporate underwriter. So we we did financial analysis for risk-making and a lot of our clients were these big developers. And so all of those things kind of collided as to where I was like, okay, there is a significant impairment here for people of color that was perpetuated under legal policy, right? And so what then does that mean? How can we close the racial wealth gap that everybody hears about, the home ownership gap? And then with me as having been experienced in the operational side of a nonprofit, with the church, huge budget, that type of thing that I ran. And then spending time in corporate as well, underwriting and financial analysis for credit making decisions. And then as a real estate agent, I feel like it just all kind of converged. So one of the things that I think is really interesting is that you said as a kid, you were were going like looking at open houses. Do you remember any reason why houses and home ownership was so interesting to you? (laughs) 
know. I mean, it could have been maybe a deficiency where I was like, Ooh, that's cool. That's better than my house. You know, <laughs> like always longing for something that I didn't have, but I think it was more like the memories that can be made and just what it means. The, the legacy, my dad actually inherited a house from my grandma who died before I was born. I never got to meet her. She was a beast. I hear she owned property as a black woman in the sixties in Chicago. She started similar programs to what Greenline is trying to do in Chicago, which I didn't know. And she also went to Pepperdine and she was a beast and she left that house to my dad. And even in, in, in seeing that and what that means, I think homeownership has always been a, just a part of my lived experience. We have so much in common right now. I'm going to talk about my grandma in a minute. Mm-hmm. I feel like you and I are like now kindred spirits. Like this, my mind just blew up for one second, but I do have a question about homeownership. And that is, do you decorate for Christmas and for Halloween? Definitely decorate for Christmas. I have two kids and they would tar and feather us if we didn't. And I also kind of love it secretly. I just kind of hide it under the guise of like, I have kids, so we have to. Halloween, I mean, it would be okay with me if Halloween didn't exist at all. But again, with kids, you can't get away with that. So we have like, we kind of fake it a little bit. Like, oh, here's some pumpkins. Yeah, no, no, we're no longer friends. I thought we were friends for a minute and now now we're out. So I'm sorry. Yeah, no, it's, it's, again, this is all Ashley's fault. I love Halloween. It is like my ultimate favorite holiday. I have an Instagram for my house for Halloween. I'm very blessed to have this house. I'm very lucky to be where I am. And anything I could do for the neighborhood makes me happy. And I don't have children. So we go crazy for Halloween. You'll have to come by. You have to bring your kids. This is like a very cool area for trick-or-treating. So we'll have to make that happen. And I appreciate that because I am happy to experience the fullness of everyone else's Halloween enthusiasm. I'm very happy to do that. I just don't have a lot of it myself. You got it. You got it. We'll do that here. Okay. So what you said about your grandma, which was really cool. And I, my grandmother grew up in Baltimore. She grew up with polio. She Mm -hmm. moved to LA and as a woman in the thirties in LA with a disability was able to also start a real estate empire here in LA. So she had a booth on the Santa Monica Pier and she said she collected her pennies, her nickels and her dimes. And as she did that, she started uh, investing. And from there, she became like an actual real property owner around the city. But what she told me as a kid that I will never forget and still to this day why your nonprofit is so important to me is that she remembers growing up in Baltimore and in LA where there were signs on properties that said no blacks, no Jews, no dogs. Wow. It's amazing to me that that was legal until 1968. That's disgusting. And I, I know that there are still some HOAs that still have that language that they haven't taken out, right? Yep. Yeah, some deeds still have restrictive covenants in them too. Mm-hmm. Can you explain to our listeners what that means? Restrictive covenants and deeds. I don't know if people understand the importance of this and what it means and also why we can't just get rid of it. Right, yeah. I think that that's a fascinating question and one that we all need to address and answer. <laughs> But restrictive covenants was basically, there was language and it goes back far. I don't know how far back you want me to go, Matt, but I could go back to 40 acres and a mule if we've got time for it. But starting a long time ago, so 40 acres and a mule, we'll get to that maybe later after a couple more sips of my drink. But after the new deal was enacted, there was something created called the Homeowners um, Loan Corporation, which, which was basically a means to help facilitate access to homeownership but not for black people or people of color or non-white people. And so fast forward, the FHA that was insuring these loans, you know, that were made and developers that were building property because there was a housing shortage. And so, so the government intervened to kind of facilitate access to housing. And so they created this whole rating system, the HOLC did, and basically said that there was a higher risk of in the communities that were mixed or predominantly black at the time. And so that's where the origins of redlining came from, right? And so the restrictive covenants were a way to demonstrate to the HOLC and to the FHA that this property shall not be transferred to any non-white person. And so they put it in the deeds. They said that you couldn't do this. And that's how you got so few people of color that were able to access homeownership because no one would ensure the loans made. And so no banks wanted to make the loans, right? So that's the the seeding genesis of, of the huge problem that we have today. There are still areas in LA where it's still part of the deed. And so what I don't understand is why can't that language be stricken? Like, why can't it just go away? Why is it still there? I mean, I think, I think partially it's in like Hancock Park. So why is it still there? 
Yeah, they didn't go back and take it out. I mean, they didn't go back and take out the, the restrictive language. I have good friends that just bought a house in Duarte a couple years ago. He's Hispanic and she's African. And their deed still says this property shall not be transferred to a person of color. I think it's a lasting remnant of just how egregious housing discrimination was and how legal and steeped in policy it was and perpetuated under these you know, government institutions. It's really trippy. It's really a trip. <laughs> when you think about the implications of it, and I think that that's what a lot of people don't realize is for the few of us that know, okay, redlining existed and the GI Bill was not widely given to Black people because of discriminatory policies. And that's what a lot of white veterans used to purchase homes that then, you know, they passed down to their families. Even if people cognitively know these things, I think that there is a significant disconnect between the fact of that reality and the current day implications of that reality. And that's what Green Line is seeking to address and bring to the forefront and also repair. By the way, I just now I just got the green line versus red line. Now I just got the name of your organization. It took me just now, just right this second. It till, took me until now. This is my brain until I realized that's really smart nonprofit name you came up with. By the way, I like that. I went to UCLA and I took a history of LA class, and through redlining, that's how areas like South Central came to be because mm-hmm. there were only so many areas right that people of color could move to. I don't think that people understand just how big of a deal it was. And also owning a house is like the biggest thing you could do in your life. And you're right. It's a transfer of wealth, right? We give it to our kids. They give it to their kids. I mean, the history and the legacy and all the things that came about, I don't think people understand the gravity of it. Yeah, they for sure don't. So that's why we're seeking to bring it to light, bring it to the forefront, but also kind of paint a picture of why action is necessary. Like, why do we need to do something? And it's because it was just so egregious. And to your point, of even the communities that you see now being a reflection almost exactly of redlined areas. I live in Pasadena, Northwest Pasadena, and where the freeway went through and properties that were taken through eminent domain and things that the city and municipalities were able to do that were racially motivated, but legally perpetuated, I feel like just puts a lot of burden on lots of institutions to participate in repairing this, really. I mean, it was built broken, really, so. Yeah, yeah, and, and it's no, nowhere near fixed. We'll get to your mission in a second, but okay. back to your nonprofit. So you worked at the church, and then in 2020, you started your nonprofit, which, by the way, is a little crazy that you did it in COVID. But what made you say, okay, I'm starting a nonprofit? And exactly. how did you even know? How did you even know what that meant to do? So working at the church, and anybody that's ever worked at a church before, I love Jesus. I think he's fantastic, but it is not easy to work at a church, right? It's There's a lot that goes into it. There's so much heart and mission and vision and passion, right? And like oftentimes a lack of structure. So it was kind of a crash course in building something and the importance of infrastructure. So I was thankful for that experience. But really what took it from a vision to actually like, here's our articles of incorporation, was I... I knew I wanted it to be something audacious and I'll never forget. My husband was in the shower one day and I just walked in there and I was like, babe, I want to give money away to people of color to buy a house. And he's like, okay. And it just was like this idea that I want to do something super audacious to like address how insidious housing discrimination was historically. And so that's when I was like, okay, well, what would that look like? And why does that need to happen and all of that? And so the I have the seated vision for it and all of that, but what really kind of took it from a vision to a tangible action nonprofit with articles of incorporation was good friends of ours who, who are an African-American couple have friends who are white that contacted us and we're contacting a lot of people and we're just saying, hey, God put it on our hearts to help this couple get into a home, to help them purchase a home because they're so active in the area of racial reconciliation They teach, they advocate, they are leaving a huge legacy there. We also want them to have a legacy as far as homeownership. We want them to have an economic legacy as well, right? And so we went to this meeting and they unpacked it. And what they said was confirmation for me that this is not too audacious. It was like such a divinely timed appointment because they said, we are asking people to give money for a down payment for them to buy a house, period. Like, end of story. So first of all, what I think is so cool about what you just said, and also truly what I think is what what happens is normally when we put something out there, we want to do something. So we put it out there, right? And you were like, I'm going to give money away to people of color who want to buy a house. That was an idea in your brain that you wanted to do. And then all of a sudden you met a family that was doing it, which by the way is 
crazy. I think God really does act in mysterious ways. There's no question that that was meant to be, right? So by the way, I I appreciate that you said you made the disclaimer that you love Jesus, but churches are crazy. Let me tell you something, my friend, synagogues are nuts. If you ever like just want to like lose your mind for a minute, go work at a synagogue. Then we'll talk politics. Amazing. <laughs> I feel so seen, Matt. <laughs> I think the thing is a joke is like if you have one Jew in a room, you've got like 18 opinions. It's like something like that. So imagine having 20 Jews in a room. It's like crazy. Mm-hmm. The, amount of, the amount of hate mail I'm going to get right now. Okay. So uh, going back, you went to this event. They were raising money for this family. It is still so crazy to me that you just had this idea, put it out there to your husband who was showering, which I'm sure he loved. And then (laughs) it happened, which is a thousand percent God working, right? So to finish the story, so how did they do? Were they able to raise money for a down payment? So here's the crazy thing. Yes, they were. And so that was confirmation, like you said, for me that like, it's not too audacious, right? Because that little piece was my stumbling block of like, this is just too audacious. It'll never work. Right. And I mean, we always kind of talk ourselves out of things. And that literally was addressing that very fear that I had. I really want to multiply this movement. I want to make it a movement. Right. I really, and they're like, no, no, we're not interested in making it a nonprofit. We've been called to help this specific family. And I was like, yes, I've been called to help multiple families. And so actually that guy is on our board right now. The one that started the initiative for the couple um, is now on Green Line's board because he clearly caught the vision. So this was right before the pandemic. I think our meeting was in February of 2020. It was literally right before the pandemic. Obviously the pandemic hit. They did not relent on their fundraising efforts for this initiative. They were, you know, confident that this was something that God was calling them to. And so continued, 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 and they raised $300,000. This couple bought a house in Pasadena right before significant market appreciation and now literally have an economic legacy to go along with the racial legacy that they're leaving in terms of education. It's just beautiful. It's really, it's mind blowing. I'm like, how do we multiply that? Wow. So the $300,000 that was raised, did it go with like, was it a tax donation or they just- No, that was the crazy thing because Greenline wasn't fully incorporated yet. So the majority of people just gave it. They gave it in faith. They gave it because they believe so deeply in the vision And while a tax deduction would have obviously been a bonus, right? They gave it because they wanted to give it and not because they stood to gain anything. So I have a, I have a question for you in terms of faith. Do you think that if you were not a member of your church, that green light would be happening right now? Yeah. I mean, that's a great question, Matt. I have to say I don't. And here's why. It's because the pastor of our church was a longtime friend. He married my husband and I, and we were good friends with him before he even started the church. And when he told us he was starting a church, we were like, yes, this vision needs to come to bear because in heaven, it says every tongue and every tribe, it doesn't say all white people or all Asian people or all black people, right? So he really had this vision for a multi-ethnic church. And I think what I learned from sitting under that teaching for so long is that it's not an optional thing. Like seeking and pursuing justice is not an optional thing. We all have a responsibility as people of faith and imperative to do something. So yeah, I would say not completely. I think that, like I said, all of my experiences and everything converged, I think in a really beautiful way that resulted in Green Line. But I think that teaching was a really big part of it for me. Wow. I have goosebumps. That's like so cool that that all happened. I mean, I'm sure we have people who listen to this show who don't necessarily believe, but sure. like, I don't necessarily think coincidences just happen, especially yeah. to like that. Like that was, you were meant to be the this, right? It was meant to be to meet that family. It was meant to be that they got the house. That's so cool. Okay. So you did that. And then again, you had never started a nonprofit before. You really hadn't worked at a nonprofit. I mean, yes, the church was a nonprofit, but it really isn't. Talk to us about like, okay, we're like, I'm doing it. I'm starting this nonprofit. My husband is going to support me. How do you even know what to do next? I mean, Google is a beautiful thing. (laughs) I think, I think part of it too, was that the fuel behind it was actually moving faster than the actual organization was. And so I think that that was really helpful for me is that we had people that were like, let us know when you've got your tax exemption because we want to give you money. That's a surefire way to ignite a fire. And that's very motivating. You want to give me money? Great. Let me do what I need to do to receive your money. (laughs) I think that was a big part of it to go through the work and do it and figure out what was needed. With a nonprofit, there are obviously operational and foundational elements, which I kind of knew from working in the church, but there's also 
how do you fundraise? How do you cast a vision? How do you invite people to participate? How do you make them see that it's important? And so that's kind of been like building the plane as you fly it for me, because that's a whole nother component that needs to be learned in addition to the, okay, you need this paperwork, you need to register with this governmental entity, you need to do all of that, right? And so I think it's just been, again, the impetus of having money waiting has forced a very quick learning curve. (laughs) But I think part of it is too, I I don't fully know completely yet, but I I do know that we've given away over $300,000 worth of grants in our very short time. And we've had one full operational year and I think it's important to note too that before 1 1 2022, I had a whole other full time job, like a very demanding one, and a pandemic, and two kids who were being homeschooled. And so I think that what we were able to do with all of those variables stacked against us is something to celebrate. And now I feel fortunate to have taken a leap of faith or walked off the plank, however you want to you know, call it. And Green Line is now my full time hustle. And to be able to devote full-time energy to really growing it. But I guess to answer your question of how did I know what to do next, I I don't know that I completely know what to do next, to be honest. I think all of us have learned in the nonprofit space, you got to fake it till you make it. Mm -hmm. And nobody has all the answers, although I think I do as a consultant, but that doesn't, I don't know anything. You know lots. I mean, depends. Depends on the day and how much I've been drinking. (laughs) So Google does help, but I want to just let everybody know, truly, honestly, you don't just start a nonprofit and then it's successful. Like it doesn't happen that way. And there's so much paperwork and so much work and you have to find people who can make donations, which you did. Like at some point you have to make money. You actually have a job. And I don't think what people realize is that when you do start a nonprofit, you're putting up your own money. Like you can't just start a nonprofit. It isn't free. Paperwork costs money and corporation costs money. You got to get board members. Like it isn't free. And I do think that that's something people should know. Like you put like... You put money behind this. Yes, money. And that's not the only resource. It's time, it's energy. And there is something significantly different when it's your own versus if it's, you know, someplace that I'm hired to work. Yes, I'm invested in this place that I'm hired to work at, but it's a whole nother level when it's it's like yours. It's like kids. It's like, yeah, no, no, this is my kid versus when it's somebody else's kid. So there's an emotional expense as well. In addition to obviously the significant outlay of cash (laughs) and time and the foregone income, the opportunity cost, I would make so much more money if I went back to corporate, Matt. (laughs) So much. I know. Believe me, I know. So just again, so people know it's many thousands of dollars to incorporate. It is not just like you go on legal zoom. It's, it's a lot of work. And so just for that alone, honestly, Jasmine, like, I hope that you celebrate every once in a while. I hope that you like go have dinner on a Friday night with your family. And you're like, hey kids, your mom's a badass. And let me tell you why your mom's a badass. <laughs> you know what I mean? And the other thing is that you really could have made this a for-profit. It could have been a for-profit. You could have made money. People could have made money off of it, but you turned it into a nonprofit. And that I also think speaks to you as a person. Like that's, that's a big deal. So I'm just calling you out, telling you you're pretty amazing. And I'm sorry that I have to give Ashley credit, but I have to give Ashley credit. Like, that's impressive. I appreciate that. And it's good to hear that because sometimes I'm like, do we need to be for profit? How do we monetize all of that? And there is a way to do that. There's significant ways to do that. But I do think for what I'm trying to do, it undermines the heart behind it, which is like, no, 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 no. Let's just participate in repairing this. Let's just give to participate in this repair. Like, Crowdfunded reparations is what I'm calling it. Like that's that's really what I'm trying to do. Crowdfunded reparations. Okay. So moving on to to Greenlight. So you started it, you incorporated it, you made $300,000. Please tell us in a nutshell, what is the mission of your nonprofit? Yeah, it's a great question. My little elevator pitch that obviously you have to practice a lot as a nonprofit founder. But basically, we're just trying to close the racial wealth gap and facilitate access to the wealth building that homeownership affords by giving um, grants to qualified people of color for down payments and home maintenance assistance. And I think what's important because there's no shortage of programs out there, obviously, and really, really good ones, right? And battling and, and tackling 
and trying to dismantle systemic injustice in housing is not a solo job. It's just not. It can't be, right? But what we're really seeking to do is not only provide access in making it affordable, but also give a significant amount of upfront equity in the form of a down payment as a means to kind of close the gap and, and give back what the lack of access over generations to homeownership has stolen really, for, for people of color. So it's kind of a two-part thing. It's accessibility for sure, but it's also upfront wealth. It's built-in equity. So that's a really, really big part of it. Okay, so I have so many questions about okay. how the logistics work. And again, I think this is so important for folks. So let's just say that somebody's listening to this show. I don't know who. Um, I'm going to say Oprah's listening to our show. and she In has- Jesus' name, she is. <laughs> You know what? I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what. You put it out there. I put it out there. Oprah's listening to our show. She wants me to be on her on her network, right? As a phenomenal interviewer, which I think I am. Which so uh, thank you. So Oprah's like, "Hey Jasmine, I'm going to give you a check for a hundred million dollars." Okay, what do you do with all that money, Jasmine? That is a, such a good question. Okay, so. Obviously, what we're seeking to do is really audacious and it's going to take significant capital, right? Especially in Southern California, where it costs $275 million to buy a home. So a portion of the money obviously goes to grants, right? What we're also seeking to do and what an endorsement from Oprah would help to accomplish and facilitate is, like I said, dismantling systemic racism is not a solo job. So we are intentionally looking to partner with institutions like banks, like mortgage brokers, like real estate brokerages, who were historically kind of complicit in perpetuating this really unjust system to now participate in the repair to create a holistic access to homeownership, recognizing that the down payment is one portion, but you still got to get a loan at the end of the day. You have to you know, be approved. And there's plenty of bias that exists in, in the lending industry still, even however many years after 1968, after the fair housing. So part of that would be credibility, not even necessarily from a monetary standpoint. And I'll get to the money, right? Because I could give money away all day long. Everybody has told me I'm way too generous, but I am here for it. I will make it rain as much money as I have. I will give it away. But in addition to the financial resources, which are important because you can't give money away that you don't have, is, is credibility and access to these partnerships that will help to multiply the impact and move the needle in what we're trying to do even, even faster and quicker. Does that make sense? It does. So Oprah gives you a check for $100 million. You like to give money away. Mm-hmm. Somebody mm-hmm. who wants to become a homeowner, mm-hmm. what do they do? What do they have to do to apply? What qualifications are you looking for before you write a check? Yeah, that is a great, great question. So, I mean, I can give you, you know, real-time examples that we currently have. But so someone through our website submits an inquiry, right? And so then, you know, we get that, our team that we're obviously still building because we're a nonprofit and you have to have money to pay people as well. But we have had many people volunteer time just because they're like, I'm so invested in what you're doing, I will volunteer. And so customer service or customer experience gets back to them We have a whole list of qualifications. You have to be a person of color, obviously. You have to, at some point, be pre-qualified because we work with the banks and making sure that you can afford a home if we give you a grant for it. Because the last thing that we want to do is put someone into a home and they can't afford it, and that's completely counterproductive to our mission. And so pre-qualification through a bank is one of our criteria. And really, we're trying to remove as many barriers to access as possible. So those are kind of the, the big ones. Obviously, we have an extensive application but we're not bound by geographical location. We just did a grant for a couple in Portland that now are proud homeowners of a $250,000 condo. And so we're not bound by geographic locations. It really is, you have to be a person of color. You have to demonstrate that you have the capacity to afford a home and pay and make payments. And you have to undergo a series of financial education. We just want to make sure that you're set up well to purchase a home and also to thrive once you're in your home. So that financial education requirement is really important before any grant funds are extended. That 10 hours is a requirement. So we've partnered with a financial organization that's helped curate that. It's in the areas of homeownership, saving and budgeting. And there's also one-on-one coaching that has to happen too. So are you helping them also get the loan or they have to have been approved before they can come to you? 
they don't have to be approved. Some people are pre-approved before they come, but some people are not. And so as we're establishing these lender partners, we're able to connect them with lenders that are on board with our mission that will accept a grant from Greenline for a purchase. And so we've connected, I'd say probably 50-50 have come to us already pre-qualified and we've we've connected with lenders to get them pre-qualified. So I think the I think the education piece is really important. For me, again, I'm I'm truly blessed. I do believe that. And I mean, I have a I have a partner who he's he's the one who does our taxes. He's the one who did our mortgage. He's the one who did our refi. So I really, if it were just me, there's no way. I mean, I would I would need the help. And so it's one thing to have the means or not to have the means. It's another thing to even know what you're signing. And then also how to how to do it. I mean, I'm glad that you brought that up because we really are not trying to be okay, here's your money. Bye. Have a nice life. Like we actually retain financial professionals that check in with all of our grant recipients on regular intervals. How are you doing? How are things going? Do you have any issues or struggles or what? How's home ownership going for you? That's intentional. And I think financial literacy is not the end all be all, right? It's very, very important, but we're seeking more than even financial literacy, right? And how we come alongside because there's financial insecurity and just like the financial trauma is what it's called of of centuries of unjust practices and what the economic implications of those have been. So we're really through our financial education, seeking to like journey alongside and not just be like, here's how you do this because it's such a holistic problem. I'm putting my consultant hat on for a minute and you probably will tell me no, but I have a fundraising idea for you. Oh, please give me all the ideas. I think that everybody that you give money to needs to be invested. Mm-hmm. And so I think that you should make sure that all of the people that you put into housing, wherever they are, that they are donors, that they care, that they put you in their will, whatever it is that right. they just walk away. Yep. You are approximately the 27th person that's told me that. <laughs> There's other 26 people, maybe they were consultants like me, who knows? But I think it's really important that people who get anything out of the program should also be invested to continue to grow it. A hundred percent. Yeah, no, I mean, I completely agree. And that's part of the crowdfunding, right? That's like, you get help, you give help. And so it's not an explicit requirement, but I think after the show, it will be. <laughs> I think it should be. Okay, so 2022, moving forward, you have started this nonprofit, it's incorporated, You've put folks into homes. Now this is your full-time job. Mm-hmm. First of all, what's really important for me to ask you, are you paying yourself yet? Are you actually making a salary? A yeah, bit? a very meager one. And that's only at the behest of my board that was like, you have to start paying yourself and you have to show us proof at the next board meeting that you have been paid. Thank you. I'm thrilled for your board to do that. Just because you found it, just because it's a nonprofit, you're still need to make money. And it's also illegal for you not to make money. Mm-hmm. So I'm glad that they are actually making you take some kind of salary. So that's great. Thank you. And the second piece is, so like, what's on the agenda for this year? What is it that you want to get accomplished? Believe it or not, we just barely got our federal tax determination letter. Like the IRS was so backlogged, it was almost laughable. And I actually had words with poor sweet Joan. I feel sad for Joan. Joan was fantastic. It was not her fault. She was assigned to be my rep, but we we did our taxes for 2020. Greenline did our, our taxes and filed an extension, which was approved before the extension date. But here they come sending me this bill for $2,000 for late payment of taxes. And I was like, no, 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 no. I got the extension in. And I was like, also, you guys are very quick to give me this bill to pay you, but significantly less quick to approve my 501c3 so that I can raise the money to pay you. (laughs) So she got an earful, bless her heart. They reversed the charge because I guess once they got enough manpower to go through the stack of backlogged mail, they saw the extension and they reversed everything. And so we're good. But I say all that to say, we just barely got our 501c3. So now we can aggressively fundraise. And by that, I mean, applying for grants, getting money that's out there, employer match programs, and and really on the docket for 2022 is fundraise, 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 and infrastructure, infrastructure, infrastructure. Like those are the very big buckets that we have right now. If somebody were to want to be on your board, what are you looking for for board members? Clearly that they have caught the vision, right? So the example that I mentioned about the couple that fundraise single-handedly $300,000 for their friends to purchase a home that are now proud homeowners, they caught the vision, they get it, they know it, right? We're looking for 
people that are somewhat versed in the real estate world. And that's kind of a void that we have right now because of the intersection of disciplines that Greenline does. It's important to have lots of different types of representation. And someone that's versed in the, in the real estate arena is, is someone that we're looking for to weigh in from that standpoint. We also look to partner um, with churches under this mission of, hey, do you really believe what you're preaching? Let's put it into action. Like, how are you making a significant impact in the area of justice from the pulpit or with your resources? And churches are such cultural hubs historically. I mean, 40 Acres and a Mule, a lot of people don't know this. That initiative was started by Baptist ministers. Martin Luther King Jr., obviously a Baptist minister. Like the church is the cultural pillar and one that I think needs to participate in this work and has influence to participate in this work. I just, as, as a Jew, I do want to call out that you should also include synagogues in this. Mm-hmm. Since don't forget, the Jews were not allowed to buy property for a long time also. So. Yes. No, I'm, but honestly, I mean, those are the religious institutions, let's say. Maybe let's not call them churches. Religious institutions. Everybody needs to participate. And there's so much influence there to participate in these, in these justice issues. By the way, every single church that is going to be uh, a donor of you guys is going to listen to this podcast. If it kills me, we're going to be top 10, Jasmine. We're going to be top 10. You're going to be top 10. Oh, I'm going to yes. take everybody down. Everybody down. And then we're putting it out there yet one more time, Oprah. Okay, we're putting it out there. <laughs> Oprah. And I, I'm just going to tell you one thing. So we have a, a guy whom I adore who is the founder of a nonprofit in Africa. And Oprah actually is a donor to his nonprofit, right? He put it out there and she actually is a donor. So we're going to put it out there again that on this podcast, on this show, she's going to become a donor of yours and she's going to get me a permanent job so that I could just do this for a living, which would be a lot of fun. Although, she may not let me swear, which would be a problem. I'm sure Oprah swears, Matt. I am certain of it. Yes. Yes. A hundred percent. She's too real not to swear. She for sure swears. She may not like that you said that, but okay. I mean, I mean, so on the docket for 2022, aside from fundraising and, and institutions, what else do you want to get done? I mean, you were the founder of this organization that just got its 501c3. What do you want to get done this year? Our big vision goal, and I'll tell you kind of in buckets, I would love to give away a million dollars in grants. I would love it. We're already at like a couple hundred thousand dollars. So maybe it's not that far off. I would love to give away a million dollars so that we could say we gave away a million dollars to redress segregation, to close the racial wealth gap and to facilitate access to meaningful wealth building. Listen, I think a million dollars is a phenomenal goal. I want to see you raise more because when Oprah writes you a check. But I think a million dollars is such a great goal this year. Tell me if you could break that down, mm-hmm. how many applicants mm-hmm. would you be able to fund to help purchase property with a million dollars? Yeah, I think it depends on where, right? So for example, the grant that we gave for the couple to purchase in Portland was $20,000. That We could do that all day. <laughs> that. That is not a lot, but to create the kind of meaningful impact that we're looking to, we want to get to the place where we're 20%, right? Of your pre-approved amount. We're just giving you 20%. Statistically, people of color are much more likely to have to take advantage of FHA and low down payment and no down payment loans, which means that they have access, which is great. And that's for sure a part of it because you can build off of that, but doesn't do enough in my mind to address the repair and kind of give to make up for what was lost, right? So what we're seeking to do with our stated goal of up to 20% funds permitting, obviously, is give that upfront equity. So to your question, how does that, how, how would that million dollars be impactful? It depends on the geographic location, and it also depends on the nature of our partnerships. For example, we are in conversations with a real estate equity firm that buys homes, rehabs them, and then they are going to, I hope, depending on the outcome of the conversations, set aside a portion of those for green line applicants to purchase a home below market rent. So from that standpoint, that $1 million would go a lot farther, right? So those are the kinds of conversations that we are currently in and the legitimacy of our tax determination letter will help to accelerate those conversations. But it's like I'm putting together a, a framework right now for what that could look like with this particular equity firm that's based in Louisville, Kentucky, which ironically was a historical hub of slavery and discrimination and one of the most redlined cities, so... And can I just tell you something else about Louisville that's totally yes. not a different topic? Mm-hmm. 
they have really good bourbon in Louisville, Kentucky, just to lighten up the show a little bit. But what's so cool about your nonprofit is that you have so many options, so many ways to make an impact. It isn't just giving money away, but it's also partnering with all of these other organizations, with banks and, I mean, homeowners and home builders and all of these other organizations that, oh my God, you could change the world. That's the idea. I mean, honestly, that's the idea. And depending on the day, I'm like, what am I doing? This is a Goliath. And I was talking to my husband who very conveniently is very well-versed in communications and marketing. He's super creative. We got definitely different opposite sides of the brain, which makes it work really well, but he's kind of handling our um, Instagram account. And we're going to do this like statistical analysis to paint the picture of why green lines needed. And so he's reading off all these stats and I just started weeping, Matt. <laughs> is that like... This is so big because in that moment, it felt like such a Goliath. And I'm like, who am I to tackle systemic racism and housing head on? But, you know, the God that I believe in is very familiar with Goliaths. And it really just takes putting one foot in front of the other. So if I can give any encouragement or admonishment to somebody out there that's thinking about starting a nonprofit, I would first say don't. And then second, I would say If you got a swift kick in the pants like I did and you didn't have a choice, then I would say do one thing at a time and never underestimate the impact that one committed and passionate person can have. No, it's true. I mean, first of all, you are also very lucky that you have a partner who's there to support you Mm -hmm. because it would be harder to do it on your own. There's no question. For sure. But, But also there's never going to be an end, right? Like there's so much to do. Just like you said, there's never going to be an end. This is a huge, huge huge problem that needs to be solved. But even just the fact that you helped one family in Portland or that one family in Pasadena, that already has changed generations. Of mm. And so a long time ago, what I, what keeps me going in this work, really, what keeps me going in this nonprofit field and this nonprofit work is that if you just, if you only save and impact one person's life, Think about the world. You've changed the world already. Hmm. And so there's there's so much that can be done. But even if you do it one person, one family, one couple, one child at a time, you really are making a huge impact. So you're going to raise that million dollars this year. It's going to happen. We're putting that out there. It's going to happen. Yes. Oprah and a million dollars, Matt. Look at how productive we're being right now. Oprah and a million dollars is going to happen. <laughs> and this podcast in the top 10. Done. Look at this. Done. Yeah. We're mm-hmm. going to bring you back and we're top 10. We're going to bring you back and we're going to get another church. I want you to tell our listeners out there who are thinking about founding, starting a nonprofit, what do they need to know? What can they take with them so that they don't give up? We sometimes go into work and affecting change and service is like this grandiose thing of like, I'm going to do all these things. I'm going to change all this thing. But you really have to put one foot in front of the other and you just have to do one thing at a time. And like I said, not underestimate the impact of that one family or person or child that got off the street or whatever it is. Right. So the main thing is one thing that I would say, having a supportive network. So I'm a real estate agent as well. I don't represent clients that get a grant through green line because it's obviously conflict of interest, but if you already have money, I'd be happy to help you buy it. But I'm a real estate agent with Compass and our CEO said something really profound, hugely successful guy, Jewish and black, raised in San Francisco. Wait, 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 wait. Jewish and black? Yes, Jewish and black. I mean, he's mixed. But I asked him, what advice do you have for someone that's starting a nonprofit? And it's the second time I've heard this, Matt, from very influential, successful, high-level leaders. Because when I was in corporate, the CEO said the exact same thing. And it was surround yourself with good people because you are only one person. You can only do one thing. And so the single most important piece of advice that they gave was to surround yourself with good people. And I would say that that is completely true. Anybody that's thinking about starting a nonprofit, that has to be part and parcel, whether that's your partner or spouse or friends or your community, your church, whatever it is. So employees, surround yourself with good people who are passionate about your vision. So what I want is I want every real estate company out there to have a percentage of their income go to your nonprofit. We're putting that out there too. I am working on it. Okay. I want that too. Anybody that's listening and you have some clout, please make that happen. 
Chris. So, so if I'm listening out there on the road, driving my car, listening to this podcast, which I hope you are, tell me where I can find you and why I should donate to your nonprofit. Where you can find me, go to our Instagram, DM me, email me directly, go to our website. I am very available and I would love to talk with you. So that's how I can be found. Super accessible. What is your website? www.greenlinehousing.org. And what is your Instagram? At greenline underscore housing. It's funny, you and Ashley both like your underscores. Nonprofit on the Rocks has 18 underscores, but okay, <laughs> it's not about me or Ashley doing a terrible job. So they go to your Instagram, they can DM you, they go to your website. Okay, what do you want? Why should they donate? I am so glad you asked. How awesome is it to have an opportunity to participate in writing one of the most ridiculous wrongs that our country has seen. So really it's about an invitation to participate in something that's so much bigger than, than all of us. But if somebody, if somebody approached me and said, hey, do you wanna change the world? I'd be like, yes, please. Hey, do you wanna write generations of wrong? Hey, do you think slavery was messed up? It really is an invitation. So I would say, People should give, people should donate, people should participate because it is a privilege to be able to participate in writing something that is so desperately wrong. That is fantastic. Thank you. That is perfect. I hope if you're driving, if you're listening, if you're Oprah, if you are a church or synagogue or mosque, mm-hmm. or whatever you are, to go to your website, please take a look at what it is that you're doing. It is impossible to start a nonprofit. It is impossible, especially in COVID, to start a nonprofit and to raise as much money as you already have. I am so beyond impressed. And I hope that everybody out there goes to your website, becomes a donor, learns more about what you're doing and why you're doing it, and helps to right the wrongs of history. So thank you very much. And I will tell you one other thing, Jasmine, you have made my grandmother, very happy that we're doing this show. I told you at the beginning, like she really did teach me what it means to give back, what it means for social justice, all that she went through, that our families went through. She really taught me why it matters. So I am beyond thankful for you and for all that you're doing. Thank you so much, Matt. You're going to make me cry. It could also be the alcohol, but Seriously, that really means a lot. I really appreciate that. Thank you for the opportunity to connect with you. You are a fantastic host, Matt. I just want to put that out there for Oprah to hear. For Oprah and for the churches, and we're making this top 10. So thank you very much, Jasmine. I cannot wait to hear all about the amazing stories and the amazing families that you put into houses across the country. Thank you very much. Thanks. Hey, Ashley. Hey, Matt. So what do you think of your birthday episode with your friend Jasmine? I mean, if I had a party popper, uh, I, I would blow that right now because that truly was just an incredible episode from start to finish. And so many nonprofit leaders on our show talking about so many incredible organizations, but that one to me ranks in our top three, because I just think it is, it's just such important work. And as she said, how can you not be in favor of something that is just so important to helping right such blatant wrongs. So here's my question, Ashley. If you had to pick this episode over Mark Watterson's episode, which was episode seven, season one, which one would you pick and why? Well, that is really tough because you do talk a lot about Mark and his Speedo. I do. In that episode. Um, So my husband in a Speedo versus the important issue of racial equality and housing. You can't ask me to do that. It's, it's Sophie's choice. I can't. I'm just going to say, if you had to cut the baby in half. There will be no babies being cut in half, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, what I think is even more important besides Oprah, and I say that knowing the importance of that statement, Ashley. Yeah. But even more important than Oprah is that Jasmine is going to have her entire church, the whole congregation, listen to this show, like us, give us five stars. And guess what? We're going to finally break that top 10 of nonprofit podcasts in the country. If you are listening and you are from Jasmine's church, give us a shout out on our socials because we want to know that you were there. 
and we welcome you. We embrace you into the congregation of Nonprofit on the Rocks. We are non-denominational. We accept people of all faiths, but we are happy to have new listeners. Yes. And, and you and I, I'm going to say, Ashley, we're on our very best behavior for both the intro and the outro, right? We tried uh, very hard to be aware of minding our P's and Q's. There was a lot of potty talk, quite literally, in our last intro outro. And we refrained from that. We kept it clean today, and I'm very proud of us. That's right. That's right. And if you do listen to the last episode, you'll see what I'm talking about. All right, Ashley, we are going to break that top 10. Oprah's going to be a listener. Jasmine's going to make hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars for her nonprofit. You are going to kick your son out of the house this weekend so you can celebrate. And I'm going to do nothing for your birthday. And um, what else we got? As always, you can find us on all the social media platforms. Please subscribe and like us. And you can also find us on YouTube. We look forward to having all of our new listeners join us for the continuation of season four. Thanks so much.